Oh, thank you for that very warm introduction and uh, uh, welcome. I love Minnesota Family Camp. Uh, my son is so excited to be here for this week. He does not care that I'm teaching. Uh, that, that is not for him. We're coming regardless. He loves this place, and we love being here. Now, as, as Pastor Mark was saying, I've taught at North Central for the last 12 years. Uh, before that, I was a pastor for 15 years. Before that, I taught high school. And so I have taught a lot. And that means that I've been in some places where I'm teaching lessons uh, that people don't necessarily want to hear. And this morning and for this entire week, I am going to risk something. I want to teach you something that not everyone in the church wants to hear about. What I want to teach you, don't clap yet because you don't know what it is. You might take that clap back. What I want to teach on is this week, I want to spend a week going through, and we won't be able to do it in detail, but, but going through the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to go through the book of Revelation. Now you can clap. We're going to go through the book of Revelation. Uh, and you're going to understand why. But I want to highlight right away four reasons why Christians don't like reading the book of Revelation. Uh, the first reason may be the most obvious. We sometimes ignore it because it's confusing. How many of you ever read Revelation and you got confused? And, and you closed it up and you're like, okay, it is confusing. Understand, on the one hand, we have to be really careful as Christians that we don't only read the Bible as if it's comfort food, that we're getting the things that we always like. You know, sometimes we treat the Bible like it's the greatest hits album. And I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 2 again because, man, I love Acts chapter 2. And, and, and we just kind of skip around. I sometimes will say this to my students. If you cut out every page of your Bible that you haven't read in the last five years... And every page you're not going to read in the next five years, how big would your Bible be? We always have to be sure that we're reading the thing that we don't know as well, not just what we think we know. So it can be confusing. I hope that this week we will be able to clarify that. Because what the Bible says about itself is what? All Scripture is useful. All Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is useful. If there's something in the Bible you're not reading, you're not getting use out of it. And there's something that's missing from your life. So we're going to talk about that. Another reason people don't like to read the book of Revelation is because it's scary. How many have ever been scared by the book of Revelation? Let me ask this. Maybe not Revelation. How many have ever been scared by a rapture film? Right? I mean, sometimes that's what we think the Revelation is. It's a rap Revelation is not a rapture movie. I'm going to tell you that right now. But sometimes, I, I once was going to teach uh, through the book of Revelation in Sunday school uh, when I was a pastor. I was going to take my time through it. And I had a woman come up to me, faithful woman, member of our Sunday school class. She came up to me and she said, Pastor, I just want to let you know I won't be back to class until you're done with Revelation. And I'm like, why? She said, it scares me. I don't want to read it. And I said to her, would you give me two weeks? Give me two weeks and then tell me how you feel. She comes to me after three weeks and she says, this is now my favorite book of the Bible. We have to understand how to read it. Revelation isn't written to be scary. It's actually written to be hopeful. And that's what we're going to address right away. Another reason 
we sometimes ignore it, is because we've seen it be misused. Uh, we've seen people use the book of Revelation uh, for the wrong reasons, uh, reuse it for manipulation, use it for control. But understand, just because something is misused doesn't mean the answer is to ignore it. We don't ignore what's misused. We learn how to use it the right way. And then some people ignore it because they just find it too arguable. You know, you have this old line that at any, any dinner table, there's three things you don't discuss. You don't discuss religion, you don't discuss politics, and you don't discuss the book of Revelation, right? Those are the three things you don't discuss. We, we find it too arguable. Some people read Revelation and they say, it's all about the first century and that's all that's going on there. Some people read it and they say, no, it's all about the future and that's what's going on. Some people say, no, it's all about what's happening throughout history. Some people say, it's just timeless. And we say, well, how do I read it then? Understand there are levels of interpretation to Revelation. There are levels. I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. How many know that just because you understand something doesn't mean you understand what it means? Years ago, I was in class teaching, and right before the class was to begin, I'm standing at the podium, I have, I have my phone on because I have, I have a, a, a clock that tells me how long I have to go, a picture pops up of my wife and my son holding a puppy inside our house. <laughs> and I look at the picture, and I go, huh, and I show it to the class. And I say, I'm sorry, guys, I just got this picture pop up on my phone. Here's a picture of my wife and my son holding a puppy. And the class is like, oh, well, that's nice. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. We don't have a dog. <laughs> if I showed you the picture, you'd say, what does it mean? It means here's a wife, here's their son, here's a puppy. No, what it means is I think we just got a dog. <laughs> Some things have deeper levels of meaning. When we read Revelation, there's going to be three levels of meaning. There's going to be the visionary level, which is simply, this is what John saw. There's going to be the symbolic level, which is, this is what it means. And then there's going to be what may be called the church level, which is, this is what it means to us. And we're going to look at some of that. So I want to begin right away. We're going to turn to Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse number 1. I'm not going to read everything on the screen, but I am going to start to give us a taste Number, verse number one, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take time to, take to heart what is written, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who was, who is, was, and is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, right away, I'm going to pause right there. I want to highlight one major thing, and it's simply this. Revelation, the book of Revelation, is all about Jesus. The book of Revelation is all about Jesus. We're going to see this from the very beginning with this passage. This is the revelation of Jesus. I want a big pet peeve of mine, never do it in the plural. It's not revelations. It's revelation. Why? Because it's about one thing. It's about Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus. Why do we read the book of Revelation? So that we can see Jesus better. Revelation is all about giving us as clear a picture of Jesus as we can get. 
John writes and he says, this is a revelation that is given to me about what must soon take place. So you ask yourself the question, I'm going to come up and down if that's okay. Part of it's for dramatic effect. Part of it is I'm afraid I'm going to fall off the stage if I walk. John the Revelator says this is about what's to take place. So if someone says to you, is Revelation about the future? Yes. But who's he writing to? He's writing to the first century church. Is Revelation about the past? Yes. But who do they pass it on to? They pass it on to the rest of us. Is Revelation about the present? Yes. It's going to be about the past. Here's what's going on. About the present. Here's what it means to us. About the future. Here's what's to come. And John writes this. He writes this from the Isle of Patmos where he says, I am your fellow sufferer because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus. What is Patmos? Patmos is a little rocky island right off of Turkey where they send you if you're in exile. And the reason they sent you there is there is nothing there. Right? You know how we always exile people to the worst places? No one ever says, I was in exile and they sent me to Orlando. Right? No, no. It's not Orlando, it's Siberia, right? He is on the Isle of Patmos. It is a rocky crag. It is simply a place separated, apart. There's nothing there. He says, I am here being persecuted, but I'm writing to you, the seven churches of Asia Minor, blessed are those who read it aloud. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. What does he mean here? Here's the crazy thing. This book is written to seven particular churches. Seven churches that may have been made up of no more than 20 to 30 people per church. Meaning the whole audience of Revelation is about 150 people. Look around and realize we have more people in this room right now than the original audience of Revelation. And when you would read Revelation, here's what would happen. Someone would come, they would read the letter aloud. Blessed are those who read this. Everyone would hear it. You realize I'm going to try and get through very quickly three chapters of Revelation, but in the ancient world, they would have read the whole thing in one setting and heard it in one setting. And if you take it to heart, you'll be blessed. Why? Because this is the testimony of Jesus. This testimony is about Jesus. This is the story of Jesus. Jesus who did what? Jesus who is a fellow testifier. He is someone who has testified and was punished. Who are they writing to? They're writing to churches that have been persecuted. You have been punished. I'm on the Isle of Patmos. I've been punished. Jesus is speaking to us and he was punished. We have a Jesus who understands what it's like to be us. He also rose from the dead. We have a Jesus who shows us what it's like to one day be him. He knows what it's like to be us. He shows us what it's like to one day be him. And the promise is this, one day we'll be where he is. So John writes this beautiful, beautiful letter from Jesus to the church. And it takes us now to verse number 9 of chapter 1. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was in the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. 
and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead. Let's go to this next slide here. Here's some pictures. Let's go, let's go to the next one here. Let's see if we have, or let's go back. Let's go back. Go back two more here. You see this? There are many ways we try to capture what Jesus looks like. This is the first time in Revelation we get this massive symbolism, and we try to capture what Jesus looks like here in Revelation. But what I want to highlight is this. Jesus looks like the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days from the book of Daniel. John the Revelator, in about 70% of his verses, 70% has some allusion to the Old Testament. Sometimes the reason why we struggle with what are the symbols in the book of Revelation isn't because we don't know the first century, it's because we don't know the Old Testament well enough. In the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, you have this incredible vision of someone dressed like the Ancient of Days. What does that mean? It's a picture of God. Hair white like wool. His skin looks incredibly bronze, a tan like bronze. Uh, he has fiery brilliance all around him. And you find all of these kingdoms that are set up against the Ancient of Days. Kingdoms that are typified as if they're beasts, as if they're wild animals. And the whole point is this. Who did God give the authority of the world to? Did he give it to the animals or did he give it to human beings? He gave it to us. Anytime you have a government in place that's pictured like a beast, everything's out of order because the beasts aren't supposed to be in charge. Human beings are in charge. And Daniel says, and I saw the Ancient of Days, and he gave his power to one who looked like a son of man. He looked like a human being. And that human being was given the authority to rule forever and ever. So now John is on the Isle of Patmos. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Understand, here is a man who is persecuted. Here is a man who is suffering. Here is a man who still knows how to be in the Spirit despite his suffering. Just because you're suffering and just because the whole world seems like it's against you doesn't mean you don't have a reason to worship God. John, in his suffering, is still in worship. And he said, in the Spirit on the Lord's day, I heard a voice behind me, and when I turned around, what did I see? I saw the Ancient of Days. I saw this picture that Daniel saw, and yet it turned out to be Jesus. This is the only time in the Bible that we're actually given a physical description of Jesus. And he looks like the Ancient of Days. Out of his mouth comes a sword. What does that mean? It represents that he has the authority to judge. In his hand, he holds seven stars. In the ancient world, when an emperor died and they joined with the gods, one way you would symbolize that is you would show them among the stars. 
So an emperor dies, there's seven stars around their head. It means that they have joined with the gods. You look at Jesus, those seven stars are in his hand. He stands among the seven lampstands, which are the churches. Here's my best way of giving you the meaning of this image. My mom loves to tell a story of how when she was a young girl, she showed up one day to school in the elementary school with these new shoes. They had white buckles, whatever it was. I mean, my mom's in her 80s, so this, this was some time back, but it was a cool thing back then. And she said, these two older kids come up to me. They look at my shoes, and they say to me, and my mom was small even for her age, what do you think the likelihood is that you can get out of school with still wearing those shoes? We're going to take those shoes from you. My mom said, I saw these two tall girls both overshadowing me, threatening to take my shoes. And she said, immediately my heart started racing. And then around the corner, I saw my big brother come. My big brother was three grades ahead of all of us. My big brother was walking behind the girls. They couldn't see him. But she said, when I saw my big brother, I folded my arms. I looked at those girls and I said, try to take them from me if you think you can. My brother comes up, touches his hand on the girls and says, is there a problem? They look up at him and they go, no, sir, and they run off. Something similar happened to me years ago when I was a teenager. I was in another country on a missions trip. I did the thing you're not supposed to do. I got separated from the rest of the team. I was in a bad part of the city. I'm alone. I'm, I'm vulnerable. Some, some men come up to me, a number of men, in fact. They surround me. They say to me, are you alone? It's never a good question, right? Are you alone? And out of the corner of my eye, I saw one member of my team. He was about six foot four. He was 300 pounds. He was actually the judo champion for the state of Kentucky. And I said to them, no, I'm with that guy, and he's looking for me right now. And they said, oh, well, go ahead then. John is writing to a persecuted church, and in writing to a persecuted church, he gets a vision of Jesus, who is the big brother who has the authority. Jesus is the one who has the power of God. Jesus is the one who has the sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars. And where is Jesus standing? He's standing with the lampstands, which represent the church. In other words, Jesus is standing with us. When the world comes against us, when the world says, as it's saying more and more, you're wrong. You're wrong to have those ethics. You're wrong to believe how you believe. You're wrong to feel how you feel. You're wrong to do what you do. You're wrong. We look behind the world and we see that big brother and we say, no, I'm right. The whole point of the book of Revelation is not judgment, it's vindication. It's written to a church that's persecuted. And John says, I have met with Jesus, and Jesus wants you to know you're on the right side. Jesus wants you to know he's standing with you. And from that point, we move to the next two chapters where we get letters to these seven churches where Jesus has a word for each of them. And if you move here to the next slide, I want to get to this picture. Here's something that we sometimes miss about these seven churches, and it's simply this. These churches all exist on a road that was a postal distribution center for letters. 
if I wanted to send a letter to the church, Patmos, do you see where Patmos is? The first city I would send it to is Ephesus. From Ephesus, it would go on here to Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. You say to yourself, why do these churches have these letters in this order? And the answer is simply this, because that's the order in which they would have received the letter. Sometimes we try to say, is there some other thing going on here? I don't know, but I know this. They're put in order of how they would have received the letter. But when you look at the churches, Jesus has something to say differently for each one. For some churches, and we'll go to the next slide, what they're facing is persecution. What they're facing is persecution. And Jesus has to say to them, I know how you've been persecuted. I know how they're killing you. In fact, there is an example that it may be, this is one thing that people think is going on, that there were Jewish Christians who were going to church and to synagogue because as long as they were allowed in the synagogue, they were free from not worshiping the emperor because Jews didn't have to. But Jews started kicking Christians out of synagogues, meaning they lost the protection of the synagogue from having to worship the emperor, and now they're being persecuted. And he says, I know what you're going through. I know what you're facing. In fact, you're going to suffer persecution for 10 days. How many of you would not want to hear that from Jesus? It's going to be really hard for you for the next few days. But here's the promise. I will give you life as a victor's crown. Understand, Jesus tells us that our persecution is timed, but our crown is permanent. Our persecution is timed. Right now, some of you are going through it. You might be going through it as a church, and you're finding hostility from your city. You might be going through it as an individual Christian, and you're finding hostility from your loved ones. You might just feel that you live in a culture that no longer respects what you believe. Whatever you're experiencing, it's not the end. Your persecution is timed, but your reward is permanent. Jesus sees where you are. So for some churches, he's writing to encourage them in persecution. For some churches, he's writing because they're facing idolatry and immorality. Let's go to the next slide here. Some churches, he says to them, you've done well in persecution, but I have this thing against you. You're tolerating people who are teaching Christians that it's okay to engage with idolatry, and they're teaching Christians it's okay to commit sexual immorality. I want you to understand this. The two things where the people of God are most distinct in the entire world is in our worship and in our sex lives. Those are the two places where we're most distinct. You know why? Because spirituality is a form of inner intimacy and sexuality is outer intimacy. Both of those are activities where we're most ourselves. And where we are distinct is in our worship and in our sex lives. And if the church ever sacrifices either one, if we ever make compromises, not with big idols, the point that Jesus is saying here is not, you've just given up on me, it's that you have other things going on besides me. The problem with the church is not that we quit worshiping Jesus, it's that we worship Jesus and some little thing. We add some little thing to our worship, we live for some other little thing. 
with our sex lives. We find some excuse to tolerate sexual immorality, to say this is really okay, this really isn't wrong. And here's what happens. The enemy will always attack the church on issues of idolatry and issues of immorality because if he can get us to sacrifice that, he takes away our distinctiveness in the world. There's nothing that can be more damaging to our Christian witness than to give up on our sexual values or give up on our worship of God alone. He says to the church, it's not just that you're doing this, it's that you have people in your midst who are teaching something that validates it. And the warning is this, if you don't stop them, I'm going to stop them. Because Jesus will not allow people to take away the witness of his church. If you don't stop them, I'm going to stop them. So he writes to churches facing persecution. He writes to churches facing idolatry and immorality. And he writes to one other group. These are churches that are facing ineffectiveness. Churches who have become so comfortable in the world in which they live that they've quit making an impact on that world. He says to the church at Sardis, you need to wake up. Because if you don't, I'm going to come like a thief, and you're not going to know it. Now, why that's interesting is the town of Sardis had never been taken over by an enemy except twice, and both times it's because the guards fell asleep. And Jesus says to them, I'm going to come to you, and if you're asleep, you're not going to be ready. He says to the church at Laodicea, Laodicea is a city that exists in between two towns. One town is known for their hot springs. The other town was known for their cold water. You know what Laodicea was known for? Wanting to drink wine instead of water. Because the water was bad. How many of you have ever grabbed a soda on a hot day that you thought was going to be cold and it turned out to be warm? What did you want to do to that soda? Jesus says, you aren't hot and you aren't cold. Both of those have value. If you're sick, you want something hot, like a hot bath. If you're thirsty, you want something cold, like cold water. But instead, you're lukewarm, you're tepid. And because of that, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You're ineffective. You actually think you have it all together. You think you're rich, you think you're wealthy, you think you're wise, but you don't know that you actually have need. Then he writes to one more church, and this is the one that I want to end on. He writes to the church in Ephesus. And this right here, I'm going to end on. It's actually the first church, but I'm going to end on it because right now for me, this is just personal, I think this is the letter we most need in our church. He writes to a church and says to them, you all have faced persecution well. You all have faced heresy well. They don't tolerate persecution, or, or they, they, they don't give up their witness in persecution. They don't tolerate idolatry. They don't tolerate immorality. They're doing everything right. But Jesus says, there's one thing I have against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. How many know that many times today as a church, we feel like we're just barely hanging on when it comes to telling the truth? We live in a world that's becoming more hostile to Christianity. A world where saying what we want to say feels like it's going to cost us more and more. And that temptation is, is that if we compromise, we're going to be able to get by. 
But we could have another problem. And that problem is we're so dedicated to telling the truth, we become hard-hearted against the people we're talking to. Here's the thing. You could do everything right. You could tell the truth in every way, and Jesus is still against you. Because you don't have the love you had at first. My fear for the church in America is not just that we would compromise our faith, it's that in defending our faith, we'll compromise our love. Because Jesus demands both. Jesus demands both. We cannot sacrifice the love we had at first. Understand, every person that comes against the church that you see as an opponent, Jesus sees as a potential. Every person that ever comes against the church that you feel like you have to fight against, that you feel like you have to put your guard up against, everyone that you think is a prophet of Baal on Mount Carmel and like Elijah, I need to slay them, they're actually a person among 5,000 who are asking for the bread that you have in your hand. Jesus wouldn't put you in their vicinity if he wasn't wanting you to reach out to them. Does that make sense? Jesus wouldn't put them in your vicinity if he wasn't wanting you to reach out to them. We cannot become hard-hearted as a church. And our commitment to the truth and our commitment in faithfulness, we have to maintain our love. So here's the points I want to give you for the first three chapters of Revelation. Number one, Jesus is the point of Revelation. Number two, the church is the concern of Jesus. And number three, faithfulness is the call of the church. That's what Revelation is about. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus standing with his church. And it's about teaching the church how to stand with Jesus. Can I give you one more story before we close? Okay, good. Someone said yes, so I'll do it. Uh, I, I pastored a church once that uh, was a pastor at a church that was going through a severe depression. And, and what I mean by that is this. They had had a moral failing at this church of another pastor that had been really loved, a pastor that was going to be the new senior pastor. It had devastated the church. When they lost this pastor, they felt like they lost their future. And everyone for the next six months who preached in the church was preaching to a church that was experiencing a depression. In fact, the sermons many times were just about, we just got to get through this. We just got to get through this. We just got to get through this. And it was six months without an amen during a sermon. And then they invited me to preach. And I decided I was going to preach on the book of Revelation. And what I was going to preach on, I still remember the title. It was called Jesus Christ, the Last Man Standing. And I had this line, because I was young, Pastor Mark. I was in my 20s. I was more of a yeller back then. And I had this line where I would say repeatedly in the sermon, when all the dust has settled and all the smoke has cleared, Jesus Christ will be the last man standing. You know, and I would do the whole Pentecostal thing. And I got up to this church that had been depressed, that had not had an amen in six months. And I began to preach what the revelation teaches about Jesus. And I came to that line for the first time. And I said, when all the dust is settled and all the smoke is cleared, Jesus Christ will be the last man standing. And the church got really silent. 
for this really uncomfortable five seconds. And finally, one elderly brother in the back said, well, glory. (laughs) And at that moment, the entire church broke off in amens. And for the rest of the sermon, it was amen, amen, amen. Why? Because they needed to be reminded that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. What is our response to the book of Revelation? Our response is this, glory, glory. Glory, Jesus wins. So here's what I want to do every Bible study. I'm going to ask our team to come back up. We're going to close out every Bible study in worship. Tomorrow you're going to learn why Revelation is really about worship and not judgment. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. But the book of Revelation in the New Testament is the only book that should have its own soundtrack because of how worship fills the book. So I think the most appropriate way of responding to the study of this is ending any time in worship. As they come, I'm going to close in a word of prayer. They're going to worship us out. But here's what I want to pray. If you're someone who says, look, I don't even have a relationship with Jesus. I hear what you're talking about, but I wouldn't put myself in the position of being someone who looks for Jesus. I want to pray for you this morning because this morning Jesus can become your king. If you're someone who says, I'm a church, I'm part of a church, and we're struggling, we need to know that Jesus is for us. We need to know that he stands with us. I want to pray for you this morning. And if you're someone who is a Christian who says, you're struggling with unfaithfulness, maybe it's an idolatry or immorality, maybe it's just hard-heartedness, I want to pray for you. And as I pray this, if you bow your heads, close your eyes,